Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the In Lockdown With podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Phoebe Kemp. Hi Phoebe, how are you? How are you doing? Hi Kieran. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, got that 2020 feeling, but uh, yeah, hanging in there. <laughs> and uh, are you still in lockdown now in England? Because we've come out of it. Yeah, so we've only just gone into it. Right. We went into it proper lockdown on Thursday. So we're kind of at the beginning of our right. four-week lockdown. So we come, we're supposed to come out on the 2nd of December, but I don't necessarily believe the government when they say no. stuff like that. So we'll see. And, and like, no offence, but I'm so glad that we've got a devolved government to get away. Yeah. You know, throughout this whole crisis I think we've just dealt with it better than the UK government yes definitely I think most I feel like most places have dealt with it better than the UK government uh, yes unfortunately but but uh, thanks for coming on and the the first thing I want to ask you is how, how did you first get interested in theatre and the arts um so as a child like when i was very small i was really into dance um and that was kind of the thing that i did all the different types of dance and then when i got diagnosed with my um Ehlers danlos syndrome or, or something else at that time but um i was told i wasn't allowed to do anything high impact right. and obviously a lot of dance is jumping so i had to stop all of that and my mum signed me up for a drama club and I just fell in love with it when I was about eight years old and then just kind of kept doing it. And I got to around sort of 15, 16 when there's an age where everybody kind of wants to be a ballerina or an actor or a footballer. And I got to 15, yeah. 16 and other people were kind of talking about like proper jobs, like <laughs> wanting to be nurses or teachers yeah. or like scientists. And I was like, oh no, I still want to be an actor. And then realized that maybe this wasn't going to change. Um, but you kind of always saw it as something that you wanted to do in a professional context. It was always like, I'm going to be an actor. Yeah, yeah, just like, this is what I want to do. Um, wanted to apply for drama schools. It kind of just like nothing ever else occurred to me to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. 
uh, in, in terms of access to arts provision as a young person, did you face any barriers? Um, well, I didn't start using a wheelchair until I was in my second year of drama school, so I think that right. probably helped a lot with my access. Um, I mean, I didn't really, like, I wonder whether now, if I had had the option of doing dance with kind of a company that sort of specialises in dance for disabled people, like Kambuku or something, that might yeah. have been an option for me to continue with that. Um, I kind of was like, just totally cut a high impact, and I was just like, oh, well, I can't do dance then. Um, and there are certain, like, I couldn't do musical theatre, which I've always loved. Um, uh, yeah, and I think sort of at that age, I don't remember anything standing out, but I think also mm. my awareness of kind of disability rights was sort of mm. minimal. So I kind of very much felt it as like, oh, this is my thing that I have to manage rather than yeah. asking for support. You didn't necessarily know about the social model at that point. No, not at all. It definitely was like, oh, this is a thing that is wrong with me. And I think I mostly kind of didn't want to talk about it as much right. as I could. Um, like I had to kind of say, oh, I can't sit in certain ways or I can't run. But other than that, I kind of, I didn't, even though I did have fatigue and pain, I didn't in any way ask for rest breaks right. or talk about that because I just wasn't, I was still quite, I think, um, private about it. And um, you you went to East 15, you went to drum school, and you studied a BA in world performance. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that course because I haven't come across this world <laughs> performance before. So what did it involve and what was it like? <laughs> and what was your so, experience at drama school like? So we were the first year of the course when I started. So that would have been 2008 to 2011 were the three years I studied. Um... So I expect what the course is now is probably quite different to what it was then because it sort of felt, there was a little bit of making it up as we went along. Um, essentially, it was kind of studying performance from a, rather than from a purely Western perspective, studying it from a global perspective. So we mm. had little bits of everything. So our head of course was a specialist in Jingju, which is a type of, um, called Beijing Opera, it's a type of, uh, sort of operatic theatre performance inspired by martial art. We had African drumming and African dance lessons. We had yeah. Balinese theatre. Someone come from Bali to teach us Balinese theatre. We studied theory written from people all over the world um, and kind of approached theatre from a different perspective, um, which I mean I really liked because of a lot of especially when within the East 15th tradition, is very about kind of naturalistic and method acting. Right. Whereas, and kind of about the actor's experience, whereas world performance, because so much of it is very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sort of non-realistic, kind of heightened theatre, right. also do mask work and puppetry and stuff like that. Um, it's about you're doing something to get a reaction from the audience and it's really about right. really focusing on the point of the theatre 
is for what, what experience you give to the audience. That's what you should be trying to do, and you can use different things to get that. Um, it's not necessarily about you feeling like, oh, I feel really sad, so that must have made the audience cry. Like, not, that isn't necessarily how it actually okay. works. Um, as kind of as my experience of the course was, it was very intense. Um, and it was, I was the first wheelchair user they'd ever had at East 15. Right. And they didn't really know how to handle me um, or handle accessibility. Um, I think also because I'm a part-time wheelchair user, that often confuses people, um, especially when we had um, visiting professors that didn't know me or come from countries where disability sort of, of politics is yeah. further behind ours. Um, they kind of didn't quite get how I would turn up to a lesson in a wheelchair and then out of it to do the lesson and then get back into do it. Do you think there was some kind of questioning of, like, exactly the same that kind of thing? Was there a questioning of your disabled identity? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then just, like, as I think institutions generally move very slow. Um, yeah. So kind of the the one thing I can kind of point to is so we had so timetabling for example so there were yeah. I think there were about thirteen studios for, for 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 classes to happen in three of which were inaccessible ten of which were fully accessible and yet we I continually got timetabled into the inaccessible studios <laughs> and it's just like that in itself was like why did they not Surely you would like, when you do the timetable, think, oh, who needs mm. these? Yeah. I don't want that person first and get everybody else under it. It just it was then on to me to keep having to go to the sort of disability liaison person and saying, this is happening again. Um, and I think there was, in my second year, I had to take, sort of do reduced hours because of my, had kind of a significant flare-up. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. I was at with it. Um, sorry, what was I talking about? Yeah, so I had a flare-up. Um, so I was kind of on sort of reduced hours, and I think some of the teachers didn't really understand that. Because there's also this culture in, in theatre that you have to, like, if, work so hard if you're until not you work, die. If you're not like, working 25 hours a day, you're not working hard enough. Yeah, <laughs> so I think there was a lot and um and I think also I kind of I wasn't really aware of my sort of it took me for my second year I was actually I had, I had a really bad period where I wasn't able to do very much and I had to take time off right. and was considering dropping out and I actually eventually ended up only the education man the whoever worked whoever was under the education department at Grey Eye um who at that time was Rachel Bagshaw who's a a well-respected direction out and they kind of said to her look they're not I'm not able to do what they want me to do and I think I had in my head that if I had a condition that didn't have pain and fatigue then it would be easier but I didn't and she was the first person to kind of say no you should be getting the same treatment as everybody else yeah. and that was like wait what <laughs> but that was, it was so revolutionary to me yeah. um and it was kind of at that point where and she like went with me to took like took me to go and see a grey production and sort of gave me their handbook on like working with disabled students and it was the first time I was like okay I need to advocate for myself but also I know that I should be getting more than I am yeah um, 
and by my third year, a lot of what we were doing was creating our own work, which did mean I could create roles that fitted around what I could and couldn't do. Yeah. So one of them I used my wheelchair, another one I played, played a character that I could judge, so I was sat during the yeah. entire show anyway, because it was all set in a courtroom. Um, so, but yeah, it was a, it was, it was a battle. Um, but I think in some ways that set me up for an industry where it's a battle as a disabled performer. Uh, and I was going to say, following on from that, having gone through that kind of battle, how was it for you after graduation trying to break into the industry and what kind of challenges did you face? So when I first graduated, I was sort of basically figuring out whether or not I needed to perform as in my wheelchair always, right. or if I could manage to perform not in a wheelchair some of the time, because I can, I'm a part-time wheelchair user. Um, so my first role was not a wheelchair-using role, which did, which I could do, but it was only a very short run. And then when I started realising that a lot of roles are much longer, I'm like, oh, if I want to do a three-month tour or run of something, there's no way I could sustainably say I will be able to walk in mm. this role yeah. every night. Like, for a two-week run, I can kind of do it and then just collapse afterwards, but that's actually not how a lot of things work. So... Um, I kind of was sort of, so the first year I was kind of figuring it out and I did have conversations with um, a lot of people within the industry kind of going what are the kind of is there possibilities for me to have an understudy on the day that I can't do it like would you and asking like people would you employ me as a wheelchair user and I had like a very a now retired but very well known director in Bristol point blank tell me I would not cast a wheelchair user in one of my plays because that's not how it was done well, when they were in. How long ago um, were you talking? At that point in my career, I had just graduated. I just had this horrible yeah, experience yeah. in drama school with people telling me similar stuff. I was like, oh, okay then. Like, I thought that was just how things were and mm. always would be. Um, and then I kind of ended up kind of going down the route of starting to create my own work and networking and then being seen and working with companies that are actively inclusive companies um and, and creating your own work starting to make your own work did that come naturally to you was that something that you kind of enjoyed doing for the outset or did you find it difficult well, the, so the youth theatre I went to was, was a devised theatre. It was a devising theatre, youth mm -hmm. theatre. And, right. and a lot of my course was also devising. Um, so something that I, kind of my first experience in theatre had been act rather than scripted work. Okay. Um, kind of the first sort of, sort of professional thing I worked on was actually with um, Michael Mark Bishop, who um, ran the youth group that I was in as a child and I invited him to the first show I did after I graduated and then we co-created Natural Diversions which is a branch of the Natural Theatre Company right. do street theatre but Natural Diversions being kind of a branch of it that creates street theatre performance from a disability perspective um, so that was kind of the first kind of creating my own work thing that I had and that was a big thing on my 
I guess, and I think for a lot of things, me getting into having other doors open, having the natural fish company on my CV really helped me to get into other roles. Yeah. Um, so that was like the first thing I sort of created, and that was in a sort of as a performer, but also as a producer head. Um, and kind of the stuff is kind of created within the team, that sort of work. Um, and that work is all um, improvised. Right. So you kind of cram up with a concept in the rehearsal week and then you go out and you just it's improvised stuff. Okay. Um, so it wasn't at that point creating like a whole narrative or writing a full script, which is a very different thing. Yeah. But it was coming up with concepts um, which, that we uh... thought were funny, but often also made a comment on disability. And, and then I suppose when you were performing it, you could develop it and change it and alter it depending on how it worked and those yeah. points you got. Um, yeah, I mean, all theatre doesn't really, don't really know what it is until you have it in front of an audience. Mm. And this theatre as well, like, so it, because it's kind, of, it's kind of a co-production between you and, you and the audience who are interacting with them live, you're like, oh, yeah. this thing makes them laugh, so I'm going to try that again with somebody else and you realise what lines get somebody laughing and then you'll realise what things just didn't really work. Um, when you try them out, um, you'll just be like, oh, this, some things that seem really funny and great in the studio, you take them on the street and it just doesn't read in the same way. Yeah. Um, and, and um, yeah, I was going to talk to you about that later, but I suppose it leads, we should touch on it now in terms of, of street theatre, but, um, what are the challenges of kind of performing street theatre that are different to more traditional theatre for you, do you think? Um, so you're right there with the public. Um, they haven't, they're not, they, they are not people who have chosen to come and watch you. <laughs> they are people who are doing something else and then you're trying to grab their attention which nowadays is quite hard because people are so bombarded with kind of people trying to ask them for money or design petitions yeah. and all that stuff so you've got to try and see your way through all of that and get them to stay with you and engage with you um which means you have to be very very quickly on it and you have to stay in character like it's not like often in theatre you are on, on and then you're off and then you're on mm. and then you're off so you have moments where you're not in character whereas you're out say 45 minutes um and you are have to be in character that entire time um there's kind of a knack to kind of looking spotting where you think oh that looks like a person who's a bit interested because they seem like they want to interact yeah. with you or not um you kind of get you get better the more you do it the get you better and better kind of spotting somebody who definitely doesn't want to get involved versus someone who would be looks like they're up for it um then there's the weather. So yeah. you're if you're paid to do it, unless it's like unless it's sort of really awful, or if it's somewhere like when we perform in a festival and it's in a field and all the wheelchairs will get stuck because it's so muddy, you go out regardless. So you go out in like we have a, an act where we're cheap. So you with the weather that we have all black underneath, and then like these really hot, beefy wool yeah. costumes. And doing that at 30 degrees is 
like hard trying to stay um and then the other extreme of that is doing it in england in if you're doing a show in sometimes you do outdoor theater in december when it's cold and wet um so which i get yeah so that's yeah the weather the weather's a big part of it and yeah people it's just like there's a lot of things you don't have control over yeah um compared to a theater where you could control the space and the audience have kind of a role that they know they're supposed to do and does it affect your process when you're preparing a character yes i think so because it's not necessarily you don't have you don't tend to rehearse for as long um because actually what you need to do is try it out outside um so it's a different different thing um it's not like you kind of and there's not necessarily a story story will be very simple um you're you're this character and you're going from a to b and it needs to be very simple and very clear so that anybody who comes in at any point in the story can enjoy that yeah um Often, often, I think a lot of the characters are the actual characters are travelling to somewhere, mm-hmm. and that's kind of part of the interaction you're having with the audience. Is you're telling them where you're travelling, or you're asking them where out directions, or you're asking if they've seen somebody else. Um, journeys, I think, are very simple stories to do, um, and it's they heightened characters. So often with mark, um, like very makeup, sort of funny glasses, yeah. makes. Um, an actor theatre company really pride themselves on her like the costuming is like hyper detailed and hyper looked after from top to toe you need to kind of look that's like the first thing is looking great um, before you even then interact with somebody you need to look absolutely amazing so even if it's raining you wouldn't wear wellies for example you would still wear your normal shoes like that, that, looking that, like the character that draws the audience in as well that, that heightens people's interest as it yeah. was, and they're more likely to interact with, with you. Yeah. And there's a, the natural talk about there being kind of three types of audience. There's audience from like a distance away where they can just see the visual image. Yeah. And there's the audience watching you interact with somebody else. And then there's the, the person who you are interacting with. So you have to be able to be performing all three of those things at once. Wow. Sounds. Um, Sounds pretty full. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I love it. It's really, really fun. Um, like you do have times you go out and just things just fall flat, but you've got, you've just got to kind of keep on it because you're coming up, trying to come up with new lines and new things for the characters as you go. And going, oh, that one didn't work. Let's try it thing this way. Oh, and then each time you go mm. out, you might go, okay, I'm going to try this act character with a different accent or a different wig yeah. or something else that just changes it because that last time didn't quite work um, so it is something that you, that I think and it's like improvisation in itself is a skill that needs practising and the more you do it the easier it is and the better you are at it but you have to be not scared to mess up in front of an audience which I think is more different to kind of rehearsing a standard play where yeah. the messing up happens before you go out um, yeah and it, it's not polished and it's not perfect and you go out and, and it's, you know, that opportunity to try things out, I guess. Mm. See what works. Yeah, and you're reacting to other things all the time. Kind of in yeah. the moment. Uh, I'm going to move on slightly. I'd like to talk about um, me 
which was a solo show that you toured in 2017 and 2018 about May, Rose May Billinghurst. Can yes. you uh, talk a little bit about creating the show and the process of researching and what were the challenges of creating a solo show in particular and what did you enjoy about that? Yeah, so actually we did also tour in 2019. Oh, that's, yeah. probably my, that's, probably, that's probably my website being out of date. Yeah, I need to go over all my things and update all my TV and stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it kind of started by being, like, as a viewer, I love historical and, like, period dramas. Mm. I've always, I've always kind of thought, oh, there's no disabled people in those stories. Um, and then I heard an episode of a, something on Radio 4 where they talked about that actually a large amount of the population in history were disabled. And actually it makes sense if you think about all the things that we now have that, that we don't experience anymore in terms of like something like Clubfoot, like you know, the you labour or in agriculture or in wars, so the amount of amputees we would have had. Yeah. Because people couldn't have afforded glasses, for example. Like, there's so many things when you go, oh, actually, no, the same people have always existed. We just don't tell those stories because they were probably not likely to have been taught to read and write. They wouldn't have been respected mm. necessarily. So we don't have many of those stories. So I started by looking kind of in my local archives to see if I could find anything. And I went through lots of um, hospital records, mainly. Um, trying to see if there was anybody who I could find a name of where I could then track the rest of their story to see if I could find something. Um, and apart from finding out that a lot of people died of tuberculosis, I didn't find out very right. much that was useful. <laughs> so I had, I actually gave it up and I was on, and I happened to be on tour um, with another show. Um, and somebody shared in a Facebook group um, called Sisters of Frida, which is a uh, sort of dis uh, disabled disability feminist group mm. a, a link about this woman called Rosemary Billinghurst from a cycling website because she had this thing called a tricycle which was kind of an early wheelchair and she turned out that she was this really amazing suffragette but at the time of her when she was active in the movement was really well recognised was a personal friend of the Pankhursts, right. um, wrote to the papers, was really, really well respected, but had kind of been lost to history. And I just suddenly went, this is her. And I just finished, yeah. I was just at the end of this tour of project, and I found out that the archive material of the article had come from so at the Women's Library at LSE in London. So I got a train ticket and just went down for a day and took photos of all the stuff, which was like 100 plus documents, and was like, okay, this, I'm going to start with this, yeah. and at that point I then got, uh, applied for and got Arts Council funding for an initial research and development phase where I worked with a um, an archivist who kind of went through and basically transcribed all the documents into, because it's all written in kind of old-fashioned handwriting, which is quite hard right. to decipher, but into sort of documents, and I had two weeks where I basically got to pick five people that I wanted to work with, um, other actors, a designer, Mm. Um, a writer director I've worked with and we kind of had two weeks in a room to kind of take all this material and work out was there a play here and I always had here, yeah, I think I always wanted to be a solo show I think partly from a 
business perspective that both financially work, work yeah. well. Um, that just that was what interested me, and we basically then at the end of those two weeks had a had a sharing, and then I went away and wrote the first draft. Um, so that was kind of the first bit of it. Um, mm. And that was amazing. It was an amazing two weeks. Like, had the money to basically be in a room with like five of your favorite creative people, and then just get to play with something that is your passion project is yeah. like is a dream. Um, and then over like the next that was that was at the beginning of twenty seventeen. So then over kind of 2018 and 2019, um, it kind of expanded and changes. And the version of the play that is now is wildly different to the original. Kind of has been kind of each time we had different directors coming in, work on it, and that's changed it. Um, it's now performed in the Traverse, which basically happened because of a booking that we had where the only way to be at that theatre was to do it in Traverse. So we had to do it like, oh, we'll do it in Traverse this one venue. And then suddenly realised it, it worked much better that oh. way. And we're like, okay, we'll always do it in Traverse. Yeah. Um, originally it was very um, full historical costume and now it's, I just wear all black. Um, <laughs> originally I multi-rolled all the other characters. Now I'm just playing May, reacting to the other characters. Kind of focus of the story has kind of changed from mm. the family dynamics to a more historical accurate one to one now that is really about her relationship with her tricycle which is called cranky frankie um <laughs> the brand of the tricycle that we have we have a replica made um and um and kind of about kind of the trauma mm. that she goes through and the trauma that um, so many women went through with what full feeling was, um, yes. and it's. I think also kind of I'm really finding the similarities within my life and May's in terms of kind of treatment as a disabled person and experiencing yeah. life within the political movement, um, and then uh, yeah, and it's been produced by Worldwood Arts, who came on quite early when I had that first draft. I was looking for a producer because I realised I had produced things, but I don't like doing it. So if I can get somebody else yeah. to produce things for me, I'll do that. Um, and they came on board and did all the kind of funding and all that stuff, mm. which is the whole huge weight off my yeah. back. Um, and then I had the support of Trowbridge, of Tangle Arts now in Trowbridge, which is how I used to live in, gave us lots of free rehearsal space. Um, and the Arts Council. Um, so kind of we did that, we did kind of three, there been three kind of mini tours of it, um, kind of over 2018, 2017, 2018, 2019. And, um, and in terms of being historically accurate, how, how conscious were you of being historically accurate? Um, and how much kind of dramatic license? Did you use in the piece? So, um, how? Uh, so we set it over a year in her life, which is the period up to where she was arrested and force-fed and um, then released from prison. Right. Um, which kind of was a dramatic year in her personal life also a dramatic year in her in that activism of the movement um it would be 
gosh, so I think it's 26, nine, sorry, 1916 to 19, so it's just before the war, which is, no, which was 19, yeah, so it's just before, just finished, it's just before, I think it's, blah, blah, blah. Just 
we kind of have done quite a lot of sort of small venues and kind of sell higher venues and it'd be nice to kind of go to yeah. sort of bigger bigger venues bigger audiences um i'd love to take it to edinburgh um but these are all things that kind of require a lot more money and the company yeah. that i work with are kind of a small product a product based right. company um and we're not neither they or i are known outside of the region so trying to get into new venues yeah. is tricky um so kind of i feel like there is more for it to go and i'd love to also take it to schools um, yes, and I've always yeah. wanted to kind of create um, workshops to go alongside it. So there's, mm. But I think what's really nice is it definitely feels like something I can always pick up. Anytime. It's always going to be relevant. Uh, if, yeah. if you if you ever bring it to Cardiff, please let me know. Yes, that'd be great. Yeah. Come see it. <laughs> um, so recently you've been working with Early Cut as a creative yes. enabler. Can you explain a bit about what that role involves? Yes. So there are there are different types of creative enablers. There are creative enablers for um, actors, and there are creative enablers for audience. Um, and my okay. role was as creative enabler for the audience. Um, essentially, the show all wrapped up was a winter show for not uh, to five year olds. Um, with a specific aim at, for um, including those with disabilities. So it was a mixed ability audience. So it was um, it so was that, in a PMLD show? Um, so we had PMLD audience members there. Right. It wasn't purely for them. It was for okay. children, not five, not five, but with a, a ethnically developed with those with additional needs in mind. Okay. Um, so... My role was, so I came in, I was a sort of part-time through rehearsals that advise on the creative process and kind of as they were making the show, mentioning things that I thought might um, need to change um, or be thought of when creating the show um, and training the actors who hadn't at that point worked with autistic audiences or audiences labelled as PMLD and yeah. training them kind of how those interactions might go. Um, and then I was with the show on tour, um, and for the tour I helped, uh, we basically had to train the ushers at every venue, right. kind of with a with an overall understanding of, so sort of from basics to kind of what language they would use to, so you know people are allowed to move around and make noise, yeah. um, which kind of ushers are not used to, so kind of trapping the ushers on that. Um, I was in charge of creating a quiet space at every venue, so those who needed to leave the space could go and go to that. Yeah. Um, uh, sort of setting up outside the social stories and um, ear defenders and things that people could, could grab if they needed to. For, Drawing for, the show. For people who don't know, could you briefly unpack that term, social yes. stories? So a social story is, um, so they're designed for people who uh, may find things happening within theatre, not knowing what's happening, stressful, essentially. So it tells you what is going to happen during the show. So there'll be pictures of the actors 
and of any kind of key props and it'll tell you so in our one it was sort of saying some bits of the show are going to be very dark some bits will be light um there's a there's gonna this first there'll be this section with these lights and you'll meet this character and there'll be some, some music and then you will meet this character and there'll be a dragon puppet so it kind of tells you with images and very simple language what is going to happen during the show right. we also had a shorter version which was kind of just on like a strip of rather than a book it was kind of five images on a bit of sort of laminated card so they were kind of the even simpler versions so mm-hmm. that they could take in with them and go this is where we are this is the next bit um so it's a yeah so for any so basically i think they were kind of designed specifically with autistic people in mind but for anybody who might be anxious about what how is going not not about not knowing what is going to happen yeah. during a show um ear defenders for those who don't know are basically like headphones that aren't attached to anything so for people who get sensory overload from the voice they can have them over their ears which just dampens everything um, and then we also had sunglasses for those who needed it from the light. And then during the show, I basically had a whole bag full of these things, plus different bits of sensory toys that I would give to children that yeah. were struggling. Right. Either through sort of kind of like I basically might during the show, there are a couple of bits where I was performing or holding bits of sellotape. Mm-hmm. It was all made of paper and sellotape, wrapping paper and sellotape and bubble wrap um so um and so i had in my bag bits of bubble wrap and stuff like that so if somebody was being distressed often they could be like oh a distraction thing um and also kind of managing there were different kind of places it wasn't kind of a normal kind of audience sits in one place and the performance happens in another place it was kind of sort of semi in the round and we had these boxes that vibrated with the music so we one of the things we do is prioritize those boxes for those who were visually impaired or had other sensory impairments. So that was part of my role was making sure that those who needed that extra sensory input got those spaces. Um, There was a role of safety because there are a couple of moments where things came down from the ceiling. So making sure there wasn't anybody running around during those periods. Um, Reassuring parents that they could talk. Um, that their children could make noise even yeah. uh, if they needed to, reassuring them that they could move around if they needed to. Um, I'd let people know that I had different things available. I'd let people know that they could come in and out if they needed to. Um, basically, my role was to make sure that those who had the highest need were able to access the show mm-hmm. as much as those with less needs Um and it was amazing. Uh, it was a really, really wonderful experience. Um, got to meet lots of young people, and um, yeah, it was really, really, really hard work. Uh, long days. It was a long tour, but um, really wonderful project. And Oily Car are an amazing company to mm. work with, and they were absolutely brilliant on all my access needs. Fantastic. So they bought me like a sort of camping bed that I could sleep on during the day if I needed yeah. to. Um, and give me breaks. There are a couple of days where I wasn't well enough to perform, and they managed to got cover for me. Um, during rehearsals, I did shorter days than other people. Um, yeah, they were absolutely fantastic. On, um, on touring, just briefly, um, do you find that very difficult? Are there companies who have, like Early Cut who've made that a better experience for you? 
always touring something that you really enjoy? Um, I like touring a lot. It is tiring. I kind of go into work mode. I kind of then, I sort of work and I sleep and that's it. Yeah. Um, but because acting, it's kind of, acting is so up and down anyway, I kind of accept I'm going to be intense for three months and then I'm going to go home and not work for three months and just recover. Yeah. Um, I, so one of the things is I my old, I have a newer wheelchair now that can fold up, which is much easier to transport. My wheelchair before that, I had to always drive myself because it could only go in my car. And that driving was really exhausting. Right. Uh, so now I have a wheelchair that can fold up. I can travel in the company van, which takes a lot of energy off me. Um, it's really great to have a company like Oli Cart come to me and say, what do you need? Um, kind of my first experience of that was touring Wave with um, Nottingham Playhouse and um, Telltale Hearts Theatre Company and um, the stage manager on that show called Ali Bakewell who was very good at because I'm very bad at making myself keep going even if I need a rest and she was very good at going no, you need a rest now, you need to stop now. Yeah. Um, so I find that very helpful um and what was really great with Oli Carr is that I got to come in with a list and be like, here's the things I need to help. And yeah. I could say that. I could say, sometimes I need a little bit of a push to have a rest. And sometimes I need to, a little reminder to take my meds half an hour before the show starts so they kick in <laughs> so I'm in the least amount of pain during the show. Um, if you're anything like me, my attitude is, oh, I'll be fine. I can do anything. I want to be cool yeah. and cool like everyone else. But then yeah. it comes... To, to that time where I do feel fatigued. I'm like, oh, I've pushed myself too far now mm-hmm. and I'm feeling it because of it. Yeah, like I think it is very easy. You kind of want, and you want to kind of not like cause trouble um, yeah. or be a problem. And I think often it's something that happens in rehearsals where you'll be coming up to when a schedule break is that the director will be in the zone and will be like, oh, people mind if we just carry on a little bit longer? And yeah. you don't want to have to be the person to say, actually, no, I need a break. So I try and what I've done is like, what I find really helpful is to have someone like a stage manager there who mm. makes sure that the breaks happen when they're supposed to happen. So you don't have to be the person always going, oh, but actually, oh, yeah. no, I need to eat now because otherwise... <laughs> I don't know what I meant, so I need to, um, and it makes such a difference, and it was so wonderful, especially kind of as my role was coming in as an access person, um, it also gave me a position to be able to, if I felt anybody in the creative team was using lang- misusing language, I was able to flag that up, yeah. um, and that was kind of part of why I was there and being paid for, rather than being an actor who's then expected to also do access stuff, like I was there for access reasons, which gave me the freedom to kind of go, oh, I can speak up. This is why I'm here. And they were, they were, Cart were amazing at taking on board every single bit of mm. feedback. Um, they're a wonderful company to work for, like both creatively and from a kind of um, looking after their team point of view as well. Do you think if it was a more quote-unquote mainstream company, that would have been the case. Do you think those things would be in place for you? I think less likely. Um, I mean, I've never had 
really any I'd never had much sort of mainstream work as it mm. were um other than kind of some stuff that sort of it's because it's the regional um and it's when I kind of built up relationships with the directors right. again it's sort of smaller scale I think the larger scale stuff especially the commercial stuff I expect is harder um I think especially people are starting to get better about understanding like wheelchair access or needing a BSL interpreter. I think things like fatigue and pain management are still way outside of what most producers and directors consider accepting. The idea that you might need late to call times or you might need to rest between shows. I think that is still seen as very alien to a lot of people. Um, Mm. That's actually such a huge amount of people who are disabled most or well not a a large amount of impairments come with fatigue yeah um if not also pain um i think adapting to that is seen as because again we have this view of the industry that like um (laughs) if you're dead and even if you have to be three days notice was something we were told constantly through drama school like Mm. should be we should sacrifice everything including your health for your work and i don't believe that and i think it needs that is a structural change in our industry uh, that needs to happen. And it, so this kind of follows on, but since 2013, you've been a councillor on uh, equity to death and disabled members committee. Uh, what's that role involve, and what successes have you had while you've been in that role? Yeah, so trying to do a brief a very brief uh, description of how the union structure works. Essentially, the, the union has a governing body called council, um, and council decides the main like decisions around policy for the union. There are other committees that advise the council right. on specific areas of work. So some are industrial, um, so like stage and screen, uh, there's a stage committee, screen and the media committee, um, audio committee, um, and some are um, equality strands. So, um, race equality committee, women's committee, LGBT plus committee, and the deaf and disabled members committee. So we advise council on disability specific issues within our industry. Yeah. So that's kind of the role of the committee. What we actually do is much broader than that. Um, so uh, we have, I think, with normal times, we'd have four meetings a year, five meetings a year mm-hmm. um, of the full committee. I'm now the chair of the committee, so my role in that is helping set the agenda and making sure that we get everything done in the time period of the meeting. Um, and we generally have quite a lot of things. Um and then there's ongoing work. So we tend to have things that are projects that we decide that we want to work on. So, for example, at the moment, we're working on creating an accessible casting venue database. Um, mm. Because a lot of the issues that a lot of um, performers have is they turn up to castings and they can't get in the building. Um, and that's like a first physical barrier that lots of performers have. So we're basically trying to create with 
a working party with uh, people in the industry to create a database so somebody doing a casting can go where are the wheelchair venues in London or Manchester or whatever. So yeah. that's like a project that we decided we wanted to do. We got like they had to do a motion to counter the union and get sort of funding to cover that. And then there's also stuff that is, um, I guess, reactive. So an ongoing issue in the industry is non-disabled actors being cast in disabled roles. I've... And every time that happens, we have a conversation as a committee, yeah. kind of have to go, okay, what's the best approach to deal with this? Is it a going to the press situation? Is it talking to the production company? How do we resolve this issue? So there's kind of, yeah, sort of project work, which are things that we have decided that would, we hope would make larger structural change. Mm. And then there's the the firefighting work of the ongoing discrimination that is happening and dealing with all those cases. Uh, on, um, on that point, like, it still doesn't feel like theatre companies and producers see it as discrimination or see it as a problem. I mean, I... I I, I'll say this, I pitched a play to a national theatre company here in Wales, which featured, um, it was a Welsh language play and it featured um, two disabled characters. And since then, the company in question have said that they were wrong in what they said and they want to work with me to improve their inclusion and access policy. But what they said was that um, there aren't any disabled actors who speak Welsh, so it would be difficult for us to take your play forward. And and so I thought, I'm going to challenge this. But is, is that some, the kind of thing that you would look into? Yeah, that's a big issue. A big issue is off, very often it's people going, but there aren't any disabled yeah. actors that could do this role. Um, so there are kind of various ways that we worked on that. We worked with the National Theatre um, in London and Spotlight to create Profile, which is an online database of disabled oh, actors yeah. who have filmed monologues, which if you are casting something, you can go on and look for. Because one of the things that casting directors normally do when they're thinking of people to cast in a role would be to think of people that they have seen in other stuff. The fringe yeah. scene, where a lot of people get their start, is often not accessible. From a physical perspective, a lot of those buildings are not accessible. The, the, often your need, there's very low, it's very low pay, so often the expectation is that you're working in the day and then doing the show in the evening, and that's not, again, that's, not, that's a much bigger barrier for somebody that already has fatigue issues, mm-hmm. um, for example. Um, so we kind of wanted to sort of, when people say there aren't any disabled actors, we can go, well, did you look here? Because look, mm. we have this website where there are hundreds of them. Have you, have you had all of those into audition? No? And maybe you're wrong. Mm. Uh, but it's, like it's... during the time I've been on the committee is changing equity policy, because equity policy mm. certainly used to kind of say it was okay. Um... Now it says that equity will challenge anybody that casts a non-disabled actor in a disabled role, and we kind of mm. have these kind of points where we say, if okay, first of all, you need to cast a disabled actor in a disabled role. If you haven't, be prepared for equity to come to you and ask you, where did you look? 
Yeah. Um, and then there's also, and then thirdly, it's if you haven't got a disabled actor in a role, then look into having a consultant in the creative team who is disabled, so at least the story is representative. Which is a caveat that is like, I'm not sure I really like. This was something we put into policy two, three years ago. Like that, I think is now something that we shouldn't be offering as a caveat. But kind of have to do give and take yeah, um, and there's also a thing that we, we ask for instant oh, a big name to carry a film or a TV show and there are big names who are disabled yeah. and we kind of go well you need to then help the big names exist so if you want to cast this lead role as a non-disabled actor we don't agree with it but you want to do it and we want you to make sure that the incident, the other actors in this show were smaller roles are disabled actors. Yeah. So they may have a chance at one day becoming a big enough name. So <laughs> we kind of, we, yeah, hmm. there are kind of various angles that we're working at it. I think certain things like talking about, um, like making sure accessible casting is an option. Another big issue is a lot of theatres in this country are not accessible at stage. Yeah. Um, finance is a big issue, so trying to make sure that more and more of our equity members and also employers know about access to work. Yeah. Um, so people, because people often just go, it's too expensive. Um, and I think, like I want to say that things are tentatively getting better. Um <sighs> Like, certainly, more and more people that I talk to who aren't disabled agree that non-disabled actors playing disabled roles is bad. Yeah, and I it's don't still... think that was the case 10 years ago, necessarily. No. So I think that, I feel like things are maybe starting to shift. It's very slow. Um, it's very frustrating. You have a lot of the same conversations mm. again and again and again. Um... And I think there is a big risk. There's a big fear, not just within my strand of the equality committees, but across the board, that coronavirus is going to cause us a huge step back. That was going to be my next question. How do you think that's going to affect deaf and disabled artists, especially those who are kind of just starting out? So... A huge amount of um, disabled people and therefore disabled members of our union have been shielding and will be having to shield until there is a vaccine. So even though there are, obviously not right now because of lockdown, but even though we were seeing parts of the industry reopen, those people who are shielding are completely locked out of those things. And I'm really worried that will be that our industry is so based on kind of how, who you've recently seen on a screen. Yeah. Um, I don't, there's worry that those people will be forgotten about. Um, there are lots of things, like we know that discrimination happens once you've left the casting room. We know that people go, ah, mm. can we do it? Da, 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 da. I worry that people will start saying, ah, but if there is coronavirus, if there's another pandemic, we can't use this person. There's also the stuff around people. Like when people are talking about solutions to the industry, there's this idea of creating sort of past bubbles, which excludes people who um, 
if they have to have if they are either a carer have care responsibilities yeah. or have external caring needs that need to come in um i think for mental health it could be really bad to be stuck with just the people that you're working with um so again i think that's potentially very negative on our members um for though i yeah i feel really bad for people who are just starting out because you kind of have one year where you're certainly if you're a graduate you have one year where you're the new thing um and people have missed that um yeah and i think we know that things like insurance and it being more expensive are already used to against the same people and against people who are older and against people with caring responsibilities and um against um people of color um and i think it is a real uh fear that this is another excuse that people will use yeah what i think is positive is that I've been really involved with equity over lockdown um, because I've not been working. I've been able to put a lot of energy into activism stuff. And these are conversations that are happening across the whole industry and across the whole union, including people who aren't in any of those particular marginalised groups. Everybody is worried. And I think there is kind of a, there's been a sea change in what more people wanting equality. I also think um, our new general secretary really has equality at the forefront and in the centre of the work that he's wanting mm-hmm. to do. Um, and I think there is an there is a uh, equity is really wanting to try to keep making sure that people aren't breaking the law. Um, yeah. Because it is breaking the law, and I think that's what a lot of people don't realise, is discrimination is illegal. So, and what we try, is trying to get to do is make people report what if, if discrimination is happening. That, that's um, the that's the only way that if we can deal with individual cases essentially is if you contact equity then equity can then look at in kind of dealing with that but um we need people to report it happening when it's happening um so equity can come in and tell people that it's not okay i I think yeah it's difficult like for me i think if i was a victim of ableism from a particular company i would kind of be tempted to just think, oh, well, I just won't work with that company then, or, like, there's plenty of other companies I could work with, rather than actually challenging that, but I suppose it is really important that disabled people challenge mm. those able and, yeah. and everybody challenge it, allies challenge it, if you yeah. see it. Um, I think, because our industry is so oversubscribed, and it's so based on reputation and then this idea that you don't want to be seen as a troublemaker yes. that people don't want to stick their head up above the parapet and go and point something out because people are genuinely and like valid like from a valid perspective afraid that it's going to lose the work um but i think you kind of have to try for me it's trying to see it from a collectivist experience i'm pretty sure that as a very active outspoken person on disability equality i probably have lost jobs because of that there probably are people that don't want to work with me because of that um for me i've that's kind of why i've gone down the route of like working like creating my own work um and i'm kind of a political person anyway Mm. um and i just so I'm kind of willing to do that. Um, I wasn't at the beginning of my career. I think it's hard when you're first starting out. Um, but I 
think one of the biggest industry issues in our industry is the uh, sort of willing. There's so much exploitation in our industry, and not enough of us are arguing against it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, consistently, true. because we're scared, and we need to kind of take, yeah, take like we are the means of production. Like it can't work without us. And take, um, take ownership of that. Need to know if certain companies are always casting it awful only white casts. Or yeah. Are being discriminatory. People need to know about that, and you need to and like. Is it? Is it about? Or they'll lose advertising, and they'll change the way they work. Is it about training as well, though? Is it a lot about training? And is it about I, giving these companies the training so they acknowledge the problems that they've had historically, or is that a position which is not? treating them as doing something wrong. Do you know what I mean? I think there is some ignorance from some people, and I think it's certainly around things like the right terminology to use. Yeah. I think there is kind of... I can't, like, there are that... Because I think that is something that is constantly changing, um, and that, I think, is something that people should be doing. I think every company, not just the companies, every company should have regular equality training, looking at all the different factors of equality as separate things, um, that they should also they should be paying people from those marginalised groups to do. Um, I think that would help. But I think also there's just a... People don't want to change the status quo yeah. if they're the people in power because they never had to before, so why do they have to now? Um, I'm hoping it changes as we get a younger workforce. Yeah. Um, but are the people in power in our industry are still majority white cis able-bodied men. Yeah. And from their either from a ignorance of not looking outside their own experience, or because they don't want to give up the power they have they are perpetuating this inequality um and like it's that's kind of i mean that's sort of the world as well it it's is, not just our industry, that has that industry um, yeah. what i do think though is that our industry has a big power in influencing other industries because we tell stories and people learn to empathize through stories yeah. and if people start seeing more stories with more disabled people, for example, I honestly think that we would see a reduction in the way benefits are treated and the narrative in the media and in hate crime. True. I think those yeah. two things are really interlinked. Um, and people, yeah, I think people are scared of getting it wrong, um, but people just need to kind of try and be willing to be accountable for if they screw up. And getting and it wrong, getting it wrong is not the end of the world as long as no. you're willing. <laughs> To like to accept that and learn from it, definitely. The the last thing I want to ask you before we finish is what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry, especially considering where we are in terms of coronavirus? Um, know your rights, join your union. Um would be the first thing, know what your rights are at work, um, so you make sure that you're not exploited. 
uh, don't work for free. A lot of people will tell you you need to do that to get ahead. Uh, you are worth more than that. You have spent time training and money training um, and getting to the point that you're at. Um, at this point, like I haven't really been like, understand that if you are not getting work, most people are not getting work right now. Um, so I think don't beat yourself up if you're struggling. Um, make sure that you are looking after your mental health and your financial well-being at this point in time. Um, and it may be that right now you can't spend your time auditioning or getting into jobs in that way. Um, but there has probably never been a larger amount of free theatre that you can access online. So yeah. watch things and read things and go to free workshops and learn as much as you can and soak up as much as you can and work out what are the plays that you really like and was it the director that you liked or was it the writing that you liked and kind of figure out what you enjoy from theatre. Um, there are lots of schemes at the moment for people creating their own work. So if you are wanting to work, that's the route I would go down, um, is, apply, work, is applying to create stuff rather than mm. doing other people's stuff for free. Thanks, Phoebe. It's been fantastic talking to you. Yeah, it's really great. Thanks Thank for you for listening on. to me. <laughs> Um, on, I'm not sure who the guest is on the next episode, but um, I will catch you next week for the next episode of In Lockdown With. Feel free to like, share on social media. But thanks for listening, and it's bye from me, and it's bye from Phoebe. Bye! Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced, and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.